0: Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Beloved saints, this is our God's word to us this morning. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This ends the reading of God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it this morning. Our gracious and merciful God, we know that you are great and greatly to be praised, and we long to know you and your attributes, your character and your works, and it is these that you have recorded for us in your word, so that... We might know you. You have preserved them through the ages so that they might not be lost. That each generation might come afresh and behold your grace, your love, and your power. And so as we come to your word, we ask that you would open our eyes. You would open our hearts that we might behold your treasures. That we would gaze upon your beauty and splendor. Father, humble us. Encourage us. And strengthen us in Jesus Christ, whom we meet in your word. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever been invisible? Okay. Well, maybe not actually invisible, but have you ever felt invisible? been talked about as if you weren't in the room, uh, been completely ignored by those around you, felt as if the fact that you were standing there was completely irrelevant, maybe even felt like you were completely irrelevant. Most likely, if you've been around long enough, at some point in your life, you have felt invisible, unimportant, unimportant incidental to life around you. And it's no fun. There are some people, to be sure, who feel like they are the center of the universe, that everyone loves them, that everyone needs them, that if something were to happen to them, life as we know it would come to a screeching halt that even God, when he sees them, must be impressed. But not most people. Most people struggle to believe that God really knows them. We get it. We understand that he's all-knowing, so he must know about us. But we struggle with the idea that he sees us, that, that he cares about us, thinks about us, and that we aren't invisible to his eyes. Today we're going to look at a passage that might be familiar to many. And there's a beautiful simplicity in this passage that I think can lead us to miss just how truly profound it is. And yet it fits so beautiful within the teaching of Jesus during his earthly ministry, and it fits so beautifully within the flow of, of what Luke has been doing in his gospel, where he's continually trying to remind us that the way we tend to see the world in reality is is not just uh, not up to snuff with how God sees the world in reality, but often completely contrary to the way God sees reality. And yet no matter how many times we hear that, no matter how much times we we say uh, we know that to be true, we still struggle to to truly believe it. That's a common problem for all people. And And it gets at what keeps people from faith in Jesus Christ. The great barrier to faith the great barrier that keeps us from placing our hope and our confidence in Jesus Christ is not a lack of knowledge. It is the pride that guards our hearts from, from admitting our need for grace. And that's what we want to look at uh, in our passage this morning. We want to spend some time looking at this parable and the great chasm that Abraham says exists between heaven and hell. But then we want to see that as great as that chasm is, the greater chasm is the one that exists between our heads and our hearts. And that's the one that truth has to cross if we're going to find faith and comfort and peace in Jesus Christ. As the passage opens, we meet a rich man and we're told only two things about him. He is well-dressed and he is well-fed. We're even told the color of his clothes, purple. And and I know that might not mean a lot today, but in the old world, that, that was the color of royalty. And so either this man is from noble stock or he acts like he is. You get it. He's important. And he gets away with dressing like royalty. And he doesn't just eat to live, this man lives to eat. He enjoys his food, it's sumptuous, it's, it's only the finest. It's, it's one single verse, just one verse, and yet it says so much about him. Because this is his legacy. He has spent his money on fancy clothes and fine food. For him, wealth was simply what he deserves, It's not a resource with which he has been entrusted. It's not something with which he could bless others. This man is selfish. He is self-serving. He is entitled. If his chariot had a vanity license plate, it would say something like, big deal, right? Like he is a big deal and he wants to make sure everybody knows it. And he was blind to everyone around him. That does not serve his purposes. That does not benefit him. Like that beggar just outside his gates. It's really interesting. This is the only time in one of Jesus' parables. Where one of the people is given a name. This beggar is named Lazarus. uh, Which is the the Greek version of of Eleazar. Aaron's son, the priest. And the name just simply means God helps. And again we're told two things. Where the rich man ate sumptuously, Lazarus simply longed for the scraps that fell from his table. And where the rich man was arrayed in the finest of clothing, Lazarus, we're told, was covered in sores. And he appeared to be invisible to everyone around him. And the only one who seemed to know that, that he was existed were the local dogs who would come and lick his wounds, his sores. And again, it's just two verses, so short, and yet they say so much. This man is poor, hungry, neglected, ignored, virtually invisible. And how could he help but wonder, does the God of the universe, who keeps all things moving, know about me? Does he care about me? Who doesn't think in their hidden thoughts that God must not care about the invisibles, that God is focused on the people who can really affect and move society? If Lazarus had a life raise, it would probably be something like, you won't even know I'm there. And these two men, separated by only a few feet, live worlds apart. They appeared to have nothing in common. They dressed differently. They ate differently. They, they moved in different social circles. They would have had no common friends and no common hobbies. In fact, there might be only one thing that they did have in common. It's what all men have in common. All men die. None can escape it. No matter how rich or poor, how strong or weak, no matter how powerful and admired or invisible, death comes to all. And it came to both of them, but they did not have the same destination. Lazarus, this this poor, invisible, unknown, was, was whisked off to Abraham's side. Sometimes translated, his bosom, the idea is that of closeness. It's like in the upper room when we're told that the disciple whom Jesus loved laid his head on Christ's bosom, that they were close, side by side. And as Lazarus arrives in heaven, Abraham beckons this poor invisible beggar. He says, Lazarus, come here, sit next to me. I saved a seat for you. But the rich man, admired in this life, He's taken into the torments of hell. And in agony, he he looks up and somehow uh, he can see into heaven. And he sees Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And next to him, he sees this beggar who looks strangely familiar, this man who used to sit outside his gates, whom he, he passed so many times, coming and going, and never gave a second thought to And so he cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip his finger into a little bit of water and bring it and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And there are two things we need to see in this statement, I think. The first was, the rich man immediately recognized Abraham. Whatever we can say about this man we cannot say that he was ignorant. He immediately recognized Abraham for who he was. He even called him father. A recognition that, that, that this is his people's uh, patriarch, his father. He's been to Sabbath school. He, he's versed in the scriptures. He knows the truth. He is not ignorant. And the second thing that I think is important is how he is still unchanged. Do you notice he, he tells Abraham what to do? To him, Lazarus is still this lowly beggar who can be dispatched at will. What purpose could Lazarus possibly serve if it wasn't to bring this man some water? Even in the torments of hell, his pride and his arrogance is undiminished. Abraham refuses to send Lazarus and he gives two reasons. The first is that it would not be right. It would not be proper. The rich man has already had his ease and comfort. While he was on earth, he lived like a king. He dressed in purple. He never used his comfort to serve those who were suffering. He never sent water or food to the to to Lazarus in his agony. Lazarus, on the other hand, lived the life of a beggar and a servant. He had no comfort. He had no privilege. Now his days of suffering have come to an end. His days of serving the likes of the rich man are past. It would not be right for Abraham to to send Lazarus to serve the rich man. But more than not being right, it simply would not be possible. While Lazarus and the rich man could could come in contact while on earth, they could not in eternity. Eternal destinations are set while still there's breath in our lungs, but after that, eternity is set. And there is a a great chasm, there is a divide between heaven and hell, and none may cross it. Simply put, once death comes, it is too late to think about these sorts of things. The time for resolving these matters is gone. Lazarus could not even go to the rich man to bring him relief if he wanted to. It's just not possible. And it's at this point that the rich man changes his focus. if Lazarus couldn't come to him and bring him water, if it's too late for him, at least there's time for his father and his brothers. And having learned nothing, he again tells Abraham to dispatch Lazarus to go to his father and his five brothers, lest they come to the same place of torment. He knows his brothers and he knows that they are no different than he is and and that they are headed to the same end, the same destination as him. And there's an unspoken assumption and it's this, if they just knew, if someone simply warned them, it's just a matter of information and it's His solution is simple. Send Lazarus to warn them. The response is once again not what he wants to hear. Abraham simply states the obvious. They have been warned. They have Moses, they have the prophets. God has, through these servants, warned his people over and over and over again to repent before it's too late. They have the scriptures. The rich man thinks that the problem is that his brothers simply haven't heard. As if they didn't know it was wrong to be selfish and self-serving and entitled. As if they didn't know that God calls all men to give an account. As if they didn't know that there is a heaven and a hell. That death comes to all and when it does, it's final. Who doesn't know these things? How can honestly anyone claim ignorance? The rich man doesn't debate this point. His brothers do know just as he did. But he's not out of tricks. The problem must have been the manner in which those truths were presented. Scripture? Boring. Synagogue teachers? Yawn. But if someone were to rise from the dead, that, he believes, would be so profound that his brothers wouldn't be able to resist repenting and believing. And don't miss the real point. He is saying without ambiguity that the blame for his disbelief His unwillingness to repent lies squarely on the shoulders of others, his teachers, his parents, anyone but himself. If they had just found a better way to state the truth, a more compelling way, then he would have believed. But let's be honest. How often do we fall into these traps? How often do we insist that the The blame lies with anyone else but ourselves. How often do we think that what we need, that what others need, is an exciting package? Because we this the simplicity of scriptures, the, the ordinary preaching of God's word simply isn't enough. The greatest chasm in our passage isn't between heaven and hell. It is not between life and death. It's between our heads and our hearts. And the great barrier is our pride. I think that the most shocking thing about this passage is that even in hell, even in torment, the rich man never repents and never asks for mercy. He doesn't say, have mercy on me and let me come. I am sorry for all that I have done. Even in hell, he continues to try and boss Lazarus around. He's willing to tell his brothers to repent, but he is not willing to bow his knee and to cry out, I was wrong, I was arrogant, I am a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me. And that failure is proof that the problem is not information, not opportunity, the problem is pride. But just in case anyone misses this, Abraham says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they hear or be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And we know this to be true because before long, Jesus would raise someone from the dead and his name would be Lazarus. Not the same Lazarus, but you can't help but make the connection. Jesus told everyone that even if Lazarus was raised from the dead, that that would not lead people to repent. And I'm sure there were many there who scoffed at the very idea and said, well, of course, if that would happen, then I'd believe. And then, just a week prior to the cross, his dear friend Lazarus died. Jesus went to the tomb. And he cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And far from repentance, the response of his enemies was to begin to plot his murder. They didn't cry fall down, bow their knee and repent. They sought to destroy him. And yet this still wasn't the greatest example of someone rising from the dead. Because a week later, Jesus himself would become like Lazarus. He would be hated, he would be disparaged, he would be despised, he would be abused. He would become covered in sores, and he would die. And on the third day, he would rise, even as he had foretold he would. But even this did not drive those who hated him to repent. They concocted a lie about how his body was stolen. They bribed people to lie, eyewitnesses. The problem wasn't ignorance. It was arrogance. It was pride. It's one thing to know the truth. It's something entirely different to admit it and to accept it. Because knowledge is about the head and repentance, faith, acceptance is about the heart. And there's a great chasm between the two. So, beloved, what do we need? Well, it's not visits from beyond the grave. It's not special events and celebrity testimonies. Because none of those can bridge the chasm between the head and the heart. The only thing that can is love. Love. And that starts by understanding that to God, no one is invisible. God sees all. God knows all. Not just that we exist, but everything that we have done. What's amazing is that God knows all of that, and yet he still loves us. When Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus died, he wasn't invisible to Jesus. John 11 is a beautiful passage. It tells us that Jesus came to his tomb and he wept. He grieved for one he loved. The people looked and they said, oh, how he loved him. In all of his parables, this is the only time someone is named. And I think the point is that Jesus knows the names of even the invisibles that we don't. And he knows us by name. No one is invisible to him. He sees the lowly. He sees the weak. And he helps the needy. And this isn't just interesting theology. This truth needs to sink from our heads down into our hearts. And I think there's a temptation when we read this parable, this passage, to think, am I like Lazarus or am I like the rich man? And beloved, I think the reality is most of us are a bit like both. All of us have people in our lives that of whom we think we are better. And we don't give them our time and we don't share our resources. And all of us know what it's like to be invisible. To think that we are unlovable. To think that there's no way God could know our names. That he could love us. And that he could certainly love us enough to lay down his life for us. So that when we go the way of Lazarus and the rich man and all men. That we would not come to a place of torment. But we would hear the God of the universe say, come here. Sit next to me. I saved you a seat. What we need to admit is what we already know to be true. And it's that there's a God to whom we owe everything, and we have not honored him as we ought. That love is enough to break our pride. And that his love can forgive our sins. Like Lazarus. We are hungry not for the bread of this world. But for the bread of the world to come. Which gives eternal life. The Lord's Supper before us this morning is is meant to remind us. That the Lord knows our hunger and he is not indifferent. He is not stingy. He is not selfish. He feeds us a little right now to remind us that a great feast awaits us at his table when we sit down at his side in heaven. And the bread and the wine as as pictures of Jesus' death on the cross are a reminder of what love looks like. It's, it's, It's a reminder that God knows us and he feeds us. That our God loves us and he helps us. And so I'd like to ask uh, Sean to come forward that we might receive the Lord's Supper uh, this morning. And please join me in prayer. Gracious Savior, you know us. And you know that we're a little bit Lazarus and we're a little bit rich man. Sometimes we feel invisible and sometimes we close our eyes to those who are in need. Have mercy on us. Forgive our arrogance and push back our unbelief and help us to believe that you know us, that you see us, and that you love us. Grant us the joy and peace of believing, of knowing that you are ours and we are yours. Grant us patience as we await that day when you will call us home and beckon us to your side, and feed us at your table. Even so, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.